Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Introducing Nicolas Cage Month here at Wisecrack. We decided <laughs> that we are going to do a month long, so it, right now it's the middle of January until the middle of February, we will be covering Nicolas Cage movies on our podcast. And you might be wondering, <laughs> why are you doing that? And uh, the answer is, is because... That's just what we need in our life right now. Plus, we've got a great uh, Nicolas Cage video coming out on Saturday that we're really excited about. But anyway... I'm pumped. I can't wait. We're all pumped. Welcome to Show Me the Meaning. Let me introduce the crew that we got today. We got Jacob. Hello, hello. We got Alec. Hey. And we got Austin. Yo. And today we're talking about the 1989 movie Vampire's Kiss, directed by Robert Bierman, starring Nicolas Cage and Maria Conchita Alonso. As always, let's go around and get some first impressions. Uh, now, I know what Alec thinks about this movie. I know that Austin had not seen it before. I know Jacob had not seen it before. So I'm kind of curious as to what they thought about it when they ultimately sat down to watch it. Let's start with... Hold on, hold on. I got to get some sound effects here. Let's okay. start with... <laughs> let's start with Alec. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw this movie for the first time two weeks ago. A plus plus. It is so fucking good. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Beautiful. Nice. Beautiful. Simple. All right. Jacob, what did you think of the movie? So, I, I mean, you you've been hi- I've hyped it to you for so long. You have. I feel like I was. Uh, I got the unfair advantage of 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 knowing what our video is going to be on Saturday. Yeah. Which changed my life. So get ready, everybody. It's going to be a great fucking video. But it completely like colored the way I was going to look at the movie. I had seen the clips before so, and I had seen also your presentation at the Halloween show about you kind of made oh, this yeah. thesis statement that it's like the scariest movie of all time. So I had like really good uh information getting going into the movie and so I loved it. I got okay. I gave it like maybe an A minus or A plus. I mean I loved it. I had a really good viewing. It was yeah. great. Okay. Awesome. Austin, what about you? You hadn't even heard of this movie before we uh, said we were going to do this. No, man. I. Uh, it, well, it's funny because you know the the meme of him with his eyes looking all crazy and weird when he's talking to Maria Alonso is kind of famous and known. And so when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that's what this is from." Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like this is a, a film that is is non quantifiable. I feel like anything I say about it is going to undershoot what this film actually did to me. I laughed so hard. During this film. And I don't mean that I necessarily laughed because it was like punchline and joke, but just because it was so unique and it made me feel stuff. And I think it's actually really provocative and thought provoking. There's like some some really cool psychoanalytic like weird shit going on, you know, narcissism and, you know, desire and uh, and repression and, you know, like masculinity not getting the object of its sexual desire and things like that. But beyond all that, like this movie's batshit crazy and I think I love it. Yeah, dude. I'm got, glad to. I'm, wow, we got a whole positive yeah. family here. I'm. I'm actually great to hear. It's great to hear that. <laughs> you know, for me, oh, I just love every it. once in a while a movie comes along that makes you question. <laughs> this sounds like a big Lebowski. This, every now and then, every yeah. once in a while, there every comes com- a movie. There comes a movie that makes you question what it means to be a good movie. Yeah, yes, and yes, no, yes, exactly. It redefines it. it re- just when you think you know what separates a good movie from a bad movie. A movie like this comes into your life, and uh, you just yes. don't really know what to do. And that's how this movie. First of all, I've, I saw this movie once years ago with Ryan. Actually, I remember, like Ryan and I had lived out here for like a year, 
And I guess he was aware that this was the movie that the meme came from. So he's like, we got to watch it. And we were both beside ourselves laughing our asses off. We were we loved the shit out of that movie. And not only that, but I think recently we had watched American Psycho. And I, mm. I was like, oh, wow. This movie's an actually a way better American Psycho than American <laughs> Psycho. This um, seems like the movie that should become a yearly tradition. Like you brew a big batch of beer, you make a unique wine, you crack open the vintage, yeah. and then you share it with your friends and you watch this. Like that's how if, I want to live the rest of my life. If I may be overly wanky, I think this movie is understudied. <laughs> it's so good. You know what? Because it's I, I agree. I, I Googled I, I tried I, to Google like vampires kiss and psychoanalysis, vampires kiss and philosophy, vampires kiss and Freud and Lacan and all these terms that I thought for sure would bring some sort of results, and I got, like, blanked. I mean, I got a couple of articles and things like that, but nothing really substantive. Yeah, you know, it's weird. If you listen to the director's commentary, and I listen to, to snippets of it because it's on – parts of it are on YouTube. It definitely seems like the director, Nicolas Cage, were just like, yeah, man, we were just fucking around. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Like, we kind of just didn't care. And I get that, and I know that – it maybe seems a little bit ridiculous to try to think critically about a movie in which the creators clearly at least didn't put that much thought into it. I, but I think that's a little that's like a little wrong. I think it's a mixture of okay. they were very sort of like loose about it. Like in a, in one way, they didn't care. But in another way, Nicolas Cage was like, I've never put so much effort into roles I put into this one. But at the same mm. time, oh, awesome. there was like a kind of just sort of freestyling about it. Uh, and it was very chaotic. So, so I think it's a little bit of the mixture of the two. It's the not caring and hyper caring at the same time. Okay, because yeah, he seems like he he hyper studied his performance. He was incredibly focused on what he was going to, you know, how he was going to deliver every single line and every gesture. Yeah, and but like I, that's that alongside kind of the craziness and the shenanigans of the set, which seems like it was kind of nuts. And right, and you know, a lot of we love to interpret text as if it kind. I mean, sometimes kind of lives in a vacuum. But like, if you just look at the movie as a text by itself, without considering. You know, who cared how much or whatever. I think it's a fascinating film. Mm. And this was, I, re I rewatched it again late 2018 with my girlfriend, and it was the best movie watching experience we had. We laughed our asses off. <laughs> and yes, every time I watched it, I'm shocked with how thought provoking and just interesting it is, whether mm. on purpose or not. There's like perspective things going on in this film. There are, um, you know, sociological things going on in this film. And of course, Nicolas Cage is just amazingly fun to watch. So I can imagine mm. you in film school being like, this is the understudied movie. Am I getting through to you? Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I'm like getting through to you, class, film school. Oh, God. <laughs> so thank you, thank you very much, Robert Bierman and Nicolas Cage, for this movie. I love it. It's, God, I mean, it's, it's you know what it is? Like, uh, I, and I've said this before, a lot of times when you study narrative like we do, a lot of times you kind of get numb to movies that are good for all the traditional reasons. Like, I recently saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and it was a good movie. It was just so precisely competent. <laughs> That's the word like, you've been using. Like, competent. Like I mean, yeah, it's well written because or... it's that guy, Phil Lord or whatever, the guy who made the Lego movie. That guy knows how to write that script, write scripts with razor precision, mm. and it feels like a good movie that hits all the beats, and it's just good. And but it's good for reasons that are pretty easily identifiable. Not to say that that makes it any less effective, but this movie is confounding it every yeah. turn. You're just yeah. like, what the fuck am I watching? But you're you're still laughing because if you were to do like script doctoring or script analysis, you'd be like, it's his films this is are a perfect and precise. This one would break. Th this in every one, way. this one is like it works. anyone would tell you, don't go into production and make this movie because <laughs> by all by all traditional rules, this movie is going to be bad. Yeah, and 
it's not bad. It's amazing. The, the greatest thing in the director's commentary is uh, Beerman just various scenes being like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking here. Like the mime scene. He's like, I don't know why I yeah. put those there. I remember reading uh, that. And at the end where uh, the, the vampire uh, Jessica Biel kind of laughs after he dies. He's like, I don't, I don't know why I did that. Maybe I should have taken that out. Uh, but it, it all works in a very good way. <laughs> and just for people who are listening, it's not Jessica Biel, but Jennifer Beals. But if it Je- were Jessica Jennifer Beals, Beals that sorry. would be pretty awesome, too. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Interesting. All right, guys, let's go into a recap. So Playboy literary executive Peter Lowe finds himself aroused when a bat interrupts one of his one-night stands. The next night, he brings home Rachel, who in the throes of passion bears her vampire teeth and bites him. The next morning, she's gone, but Peter seems to think she's still there. Meanwhile, at the office, Peter tasks his assistant, Alva, to find a particular contract lost in a sea of paperwork. When she can't find it, he becomes increasingly frustrated. Peter's behavior becomes more and more erratic as Rachel visits his apartment every night and dominates him. When Alva continues not to produce the contract he requested, he becomes downright abusive, chasing her into the bathroom, visiting her at home when she's sick, and eventually raping her. Alva's brother vows revenge when Peter descends deeper and deeper into madness or continues turning into a vampire depending on how you interpret it. He stampedes up and down the street shouting he's a vampire, he buys fake vampire teeth, eats a live pigeon, and kills a woman at a club where Rachel appears and breaks up with him. He then sees her with a new man and accosts her but she only vaguely remembers him. Peter fantasizes about ending therapy in favor of the real thing that can make him happy, true love. The doctor pairs him up with her other patient, Sharon, who is perfect in every respect, but by the time they get back to his apartment, he's already sick of her. Peter tries to kill himself with a wooden stake, and when Alva's brother shows up at his apartment, he shoves it in hard enough to kill him. End of movie. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year, and that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. All right, guys. So the first thing I want to ask about this movie is, what is it about? What happens in this movie? (laughs) Um, And yeah, so I want to go around and see what what do you guys take away from this? Let's start with Alec. You know, it's weird. The only thing I've ever seen described as from Nicolas Cage and the director is a story about loneliness and the Mm. city driving a man crazy. And I obviously don't disagree with that. But I think you agree with me here. And I probably got this idea from you on one end. It's about how uh, the rich live parasitically off the working class. And in another way, it's about sort of people's, like like this rich guy's standard, uh, like his relationship with women being very like toxic and destroying him from within. So and I think the most telling example of this is at the end, he finds the girl of the dreams, but still by the end of the the walk home, he I think he's calling her a cunt. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, third time. But it's like he's so poisoned internally, he'll never find like true happiness from women, which, uh, you know, his relationship to women is sort of, shown throughout the movie so i think it's about those two things i think i would say the same my question is do you guys have any idea of what literally happens with rachel like if we're to believe that the whole vampire thing is just him going crazy and then at the end he actually sees rachel in the club and she kind of remembers him 
but obviously not all the vampire stuff had happened. So what actually happened between them? I, I think he slept with her and then imagine like in real life and then imagine the rest. Okay. Do you think the first time that they met when he asked her if she got the joke, that, that that was like the first night that they had met, that they slept together then, and then the rest is all fabrication? Hmm. Maybe. I, I was also wondering. Or do you think it's like, like prior to that? Just, I thought it was just a pickup line. Yeah, I think I think they probably met that night. My okay. thing was I didn't know if I was – is this a movie about a guy who kind of can't get over a girl who didn't want him? Like did he bring her home that night? They had a one-night stand and he gets infected with like true love and he really wants her but she didn't want him or something. And that's what drives him crazy. Hmm. That's what maybe it's I was interpreting. Cause like, yeah. Because we've seen that he's had a lot of one-night stands and then – but then this one – changes things really shatters his psyche or either that or it was the bat in the previous one night stand i don't what do you you guys have anything to interpret about the bat what's the significance of the bat arousing him (laughs) well i mean it has something to do with with fear and and releasing something um why is it specifically a bat i mean it probably has something to do with uh with a combination, one of, of fear mixed with sexual arousal, but also attaching that to kind of like the mythos of uh, of Nosferatu and things like that that are all kind of filtered in there. And then if you tap that onto or attach that onto the idea of the dissatisfaction that comes with being a part of like the extractive class, right? That you're you're always chasing something more. I think all of that is kind of circling around that. So, I mean, I think it kind of has something to do with his dissatisfaction with being somebody who is supposed to be in a position of the satisfied. And it all kind of like, it's the return of the repressed. All of that's been repressed and it comes out in that moment of fear. It could be embarrassment, vulnerability. It could be something along those lines. Like maybe there's like a, he couldn't actually satisfy a woman. And so there's an insecurity that comes back. I mean, I know I'm doing like a deep read and that's not really there, but it, it has something to do with like a return of the repressed, right? And for some reason, I mean, the bat this... frightens him in his state of arousal, and it arouses him even more, and it and it spirals him down into this mania where he can only narcissistically project his own object of his desire, which is really just himself, right? Because he's talking to himself, especially at the end when he's got, like, the perfect woman who he ends up hating again after 10 minutes, right? And that's how right. the film starts, too. When he's talking with his psych- psychiatrist, he says – yeah, I, or she says, oh, but you wanted her the night before. But as soon as I woke up in the morning, I, I was dressed and I was in my clothes and I just wanted to get rid of her. So it's this idea of chasing the object of desire. And then once you get it, you don't want it anymore. It's that famous madman line. It's like uh, Don Draper says, what's happiness? He's like, you don't want to be happy. What's happiness? Happiness is just a moment before you need more happiness. And it's that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, see, this it's, it's these kind of things. It's like, yeah, this movie... On an initial viewing, it might be ridiculous to focus on anything other than Nick Cage's wild performance, but... It does play with some very interesting ideas mm-hmm. and themes. I mean, if for people like us, for people like us, it's the Nick Cage performance only baits us into wanting to look deeper into those things. So, uh, yeah, that's why this movie is so fun and so fascinating. You know, one thing that I hadn't taken into consideration that kind of puts the tone of this movie into a bit of context is that this movie came out in 1989. 88, I think. I think it was, 80, well, either one. It was the end of the 80s, and the 80s had so many vampire movies. So there was The Lost Boys, Fright Night, Near Dark, The Monster Squad, Once Bitten, Vamp, My Best Friend is a Vampire, Life Force, Vampire Hunter D. I'm, I, it almost makes sense to see that like they're kind of taking the piss out of the vampire genre that had kind of dominated a decade toward the end of the decade, and maybe that's kind of what they were going for with going so over the top. But anyway, I, I, um, 
I interrupted you, Alec. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to, I don't have any answers here, but I do think it's interesting, Nosferatu especially, which they watch in the movie. There's just this common conflation with vampires and like eroticism and seduction and Nosferatu yeah. preys off of, you know, peasant women and, and assaults them and all these crazy things. Uh, but in the case of Nick Cage, he his fantasy is being dominated, uh, not him dominating women, although that's what he does to Alva. But initially it's him being dominated by Rachel, the, the female vampire. I, I don't really know what that means, but it's just there. Mm-hmm. It's it a is- touch of danger, too, right? Like he's. He's. It seems like almost he's bored with this this sort of this sort of play he does every weekend mm-hmm. when he has the women and he takes them home and he does his thing with them and all of a sudden this vamp, this this bat is like the touch of danger. It's something new yeah. and different. He's aroused by that, and then he kind of descends into this whole madness and this different direction for himself until ultimately he's kind of right back where he started. Right. I mean, there could be a good like uh, like queer theory reading of this, right? That it's like the idea of the inversion of masculinity. Is he wants to. He, he thinks that he wants to be the penetrator, but he can never actually get satisfied <laughs> that way. But it's only when he's submissive that uh, that that kind of happens and that there's like – I bet there is like a really interesting sort of like reading on this, like some sort of Lee Edelman style reading or something, you know? Alva's brother. Yeah, man. Does Academia, the... get on this movie, man. You guys are slacking. <laughs> I know. Uh, all right, so let's That's talk all about. You have to do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's talk about Cage's performance. Let's get to the good stuff. Oh, man. Um, so I just want to go over, uh, go start this by saying that one of my favorite things about this movie is that you would think that if you're a director and you're making this vampire movie and you've just finished production and you're looking at your footage and you see that Nick Cage has gone <laughs> off of his fucking rocker, wouldn't you at least you're I mean, especially if you had a studio on your ass, you would probably say, all right, now we got to kind of make the tone of the movie fit his performance so that it seems like we're all on the same page here. (laughs) And it was intentional, but they don't do that. The opening opening typography and music are unironic, not bombastic. It's atmospheric as if it's setting up a straight-up eerie horror film, not over the top at all. And it's that dissonance, that sense that this movie – formally is taking itself seriously while Nick Cage is going nuts really creates a very interesting tone that you can't put your finger on because it's and that made it just so captivating it creates attention it reminds me of of like Lynch where like something's off and you can't quite put your finger on it because it feels eerie that everyone's taking him so seriously yet it's it's quite yeah it's quite dissonant yeah but it creates something really unique it's interesting this film (laughs) is billed as like a dark or black comedy uh, it was marketed that way. The director refers to it that way. But when I was watching it the first time, I did not even think of it that way. I mean, I was laughing, but I didn't know I was supposed to be laughing. Uh, but mm. it is intentional to a, a certain extent. I didn't really watch it as a comedy. I think I watched it. I think I went into it kind of really seriously and with like grave intentions to see what it was. And there were parts, of course, I'm just laughing like, boo hoo There's some parts <laughs> that you just can't help but like, you know, bite your lip. But it, I think it can be enjoyed that way, too. Hmm. I mean, it can't like his a, his performance is good. It's really good, even though it is over the top. Or I guess he doesn't like. I think in the commentaries, like you can't really say over the top. <laughs> but it's it's extreme. It's absurd. You hmm. know, it's an absurd performance. Yet it it I don't know. For me, it worked the same way for Mandy. Like that whole scene of the screaming, like it's convincing. Well, they say at one point he, when he's you know wearing his funky sunglasses and he's walking through the office, and they're like, he's just so eccentric. And I was almost like, is that is that breaking the fourth wall? You know, it's kind of like yeah. Well, there's another. In a way, yeah, I guess they are. They're, they're, they're uh, seeing his shenanigans. They're, they're seeing it the way the audience does. I think you're, maybe you're right, but 
There's a part in the movie that is more to what Austin is saying here that I hadn't noticed in previous viewings when he's like freaking out in the bathroom. I think maybe this is when he doesn't see his reflection or something like that. Mm. And then there's a guy who's like in taking the a it, shit. He's taking a shit and he he says, quit with the acting lessons. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how self-aware were they about the kind of like the fact that it feels like acting or how could you not be reminded that you're watching an actor acting with such a performance right. or well, something in the, in like the commentary that. article that you sent to Cross, which is that, that director and uh, actor commentary, he says that his theater teacher, like that, am I getting through to you, Alva? Mm. Like that's based on, it's inspired by his drama teacher who's like, you're not good enough or bad enough to be acting that way, to be oh, like, like acting like an asshole. And, uh... <laughs> We've talked about this before, Jared, but I think this is a good time to get into the whole anti-hero thing. I've been yeah. sort of complaining for months now that a lot of anti-heroes, people you should emulate like Walter. The the directors and the creators of the thing don't want you to emulate, emulate these people. Walter White, um, Patrick Bateman, uh, all these shitty human beings. But nonetheless, you see people... Uh, and trying to emulate Rick Sanchez or Walter White, they'll put a Punisher sticker on their car, shit like that. And mm. I think the problem is, is that, it, you know, good writing often involves creating empathy for people. And I'm not saying empathy for antiheroes is bad, but it, it leads to a weird thing. But my argument is that Nick Cage's performance is so alienating and so over the top and so unbelievable that to your point, Jared, it's like American Psycho, but better because there's no world where you'd be like, oh, I want to be like him. And the best thing about the commentary is that the director kind of confirms this. He says, you know, I wanted to do Nick Cage kind of anti-naturalist, but Alva, I thought it was weird that Alva and everyone else is acting naturalistically, but Nick Cage is not. But he says he did that intentionally because when Alva's acting, you know, like a real human being, you sympathize with her and you are yeah. sort of mm -hmm. rooting for her. Whereas Nick Cage, who's acting like a complete monster, you're like, oh, no, not like that. Uh, and just little things like in the, the rape scene where he does that terrible licking thing. It's just so fucking like offensive and horrifying, but like mm. in the exact way it's supposed to be. And I wonder, my question is like, what would other things look like if Nick Cage was the, the like, what would Howard Beale played by Nicolas Cage look like? What would Walter oh White played by Nicolas Cage look like? <laughs> well, it's not only the performance. So first of all, yes, I agree, Alec. And I think that's one of the most brilliant things about the movie is that is is that exactly but i think that this is also done on a formal level so for example usually first okay so what i was gonna say before is i find it it's ballsy that you would have a film which uh is probably only be it, which this movie is probably only able to be made because nick cage was starring in it and he was kind of on the upswing after moonstruck after this movie and in, and to even create a movie in which your star, your selling point is not to be identified with is something that, you know, you actually make it so that every, you identify with everyone else except that is ballsy. That's something that would never happen today, if, at least if significant money was being put behind the movie. But my point is we also see this formally in that how the filmmaker puts this distance between us and Nicolas Cage. For example... We don't really – I mean kind of – sometimes we see his mania as if we're looking through his perspective, but other times we don't. So, for example, he thinks his reflection in the mirror has disappeared, but we see it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we don't really experience his breakdown from his point of view. We're on the outside. Right. So there's the other parts where he offers coffee to what he thinks is Rachel, but we see as nothing. And then he invites Rachel to get into the shower with him at one point, but there's no one there. And so – Normally, if you were doing a movie like Fight Club or 
uh, what's the movie? Uh, the movie with um, oh, the big nineteen ninety nine, not ninety nine. Uh, Russell Crowe. <laughs> Russell Crowe. I see people. Mathematician movie. Oh, oh uh, beautiful mind. Beautiful mind. Beautiful mind. Yeah, we always are seeing their mania from their perspective, and it's supposed to draw internally and sympathy to the protagonist. But in this. That doesn't really. It's always happen. undercut. Yeah, yeah, every time we see his, his where he's headed, we're on we're... the outside saying this guy's crazy. Yeah, and we're seeing his descent. Yeah, I th- I think that's really really interesting. I want to see. If see, I I didn't cage. know for a second though. Like I was wondering <laughs> at first if she really was a vampire and she yeah, just was too. like invisible, and then it, and then like somehow it didn't hit me until later that she wasn't there all along, and then I actually started thinking. The whole thing, like, is the psychiatrist, the scenes with the psychiatrist, were all of those imagined? Even the opening Mm, scenes, that none of them were real, which means that when we're thrown into the story at the outset, we're already thrown into him in a state of hysteria or in a state of delusionment where he's – and and then what does that mean? What's going on in those psychiatrist scenes and what does that tell us about him from the outset um, as he's kind of like dealing with his own psychological maladies? I mean, this probably sounds so douchey, but I, I really think it's up to interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what he said, right? That's what Nick Cage said. But here's here's the thing that I think is interesting. So so you know his accent, right? Which is oh, like, very continental. I was going to say, I should do the whole podcast that way. I would sound like Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> I could do the entire podcast sounding very continental like Mr. Lowe. I mean, it's the weirdest fucking thing, man. When I first heard it, I was like, what is he doing? What does he and mean then, by continental, also? Continental, it just means sort of European, kind of hard-to-place, elusive life. No, European people do not sound like that. <laughs> no, say. it's kind of like an American who's lived abroad too long. Yeah. Do you know people who sound like that? No, <laughs> of course not. I was just, uh, The entire time, I was just thinking, oh, my God, the producers must be shitting bricks at the dailies watching well, they, this. Thinking, they, they, they did. They were, I, saw yeah. that, I read that afterward. I was like, they must have been losing losing themselves thinking oh my god the movie is just, is ruined well that's why i thought that's why it's amazing that the movie isn't like you know doesn't try to make more of a joke of it in post oh. you know it's amazing that it survived in it what i imagine is its original vision so so the weird thing uh, is, is like, i've actually heard people put on accents like that and uh, there's this one pastor in particular that I remember who was American, and I remember when I listened to him back in the day, when when I would listen to like sermons of his or when I would listen to interviews, I was like, "Is what is that accent?" And it's just this like it's this attempt at East Coast elitism, but it's kind of like this weird faux British inflection that gets kind of put in there. But it made me think. Like, beyond the fact that Nick Cage is just eccentric and he's doing something wild with the character, it made me think it actually fits really well with the character because the character, maybe he's not actually an elitist, or, or I'm sorry, maybe he's not actually an elite, but maybe he's an elitist in that he's always striving to be. I mean, he works in literary, like... Uh, hey, man, uh, books well, were big business back then. <laughs> I yeah, mean, back, in, back then, In 88, man. it was a good business, baby. I mean, maybe, but I was wondering that. I was like, but he's not a banker. He's not a Wall Street guy. He's not like in... in uh, yeah, you're right. But he dresses that way. Yeah, and he, he, he does have a nice pretty. apartment, and he does wear nice suits. But I was thinking maybe he's still... he's he's He feels inadequate, and so even putting on the accent works for the character because it's him trying to be even more than he actually is in the world. And he, dro- and he, he feels he like he drops it at times. Right. Oh, does he? I didn't notice that. I, 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 just... I didn't notice it until Nick Cage was claiming he did, like, in the therapist office, which, like, it's Nicolas Cage put on that most accent, extreme which was there. emulating his well, father. Well, definitely, like, who? To, like, I thought show it was most extreme in the, in the therapist. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's more to the point of, like, distancing yourself from the protagonist. Like, he's he's so affective, so douchey, so fake that, you know, there are no opportunities for the audience to really identify with him. And then, he, but he's, like, able to get along with his bosses. I mean, he's that, that scene where he's laughing hysterically in the, in oh, the office yeah. so that's with all great. his bosses, I'm like, everyone else seems to be okay with him there, but he's... Clearly, he's laughing too hard. His <laughs> yeah. accent's ridiculous. And he's like... <laughs> well, that's another thing about how the movie is very openly critical of kind of the old boys club or, you know, like, it, it, in a way, this movie seems very modern if you look at it in today's context. When you're talking about, like, all these new conversations about power dynamics in the workplace, we see a guy, a boss, who's abusing his uh, secretary, who's also a minority, and... When Alva tells the boss about his misbehavior, which is very justified, Hmm. they laugh it off in the most over-the-top manner. And then one of the guys – and by the way, you know, they're all just like suited old white guys. um, And it very – it seems way ahead of its time kind of pointing out and trivializing this abusive symmetry of power. And even at one point, one of the guys says, she actually asked me for a raise. Can you believe it? And they just start laughing. And her brother's also like, you kind of – it's fine. The mother, obviously, it's fine. Everyone hates their boss. It's, you know, just put up with it. Look at the uh, distinction between Nicolas Cage's apartment, which is nice, and then – Her house, Alva's house – like all the family lives together. Yeah. She lives with her mother. She lives with her brother. They all have three jobs. Away, yeah. They have to commute far away. They all have three jobs between them, all living in one house. Did you guys notice the Franz Kafka portrait behind his desk? I didn't, but I heard about it and I was like, oh, where is that? Uh, yeah, that, that was the first thing I noticed. This thing, the whole movie is like the metamorphosis. You're just watching this man mm-hmm. descend further and further and further into a creature. Hmm. The the other thing, Jared, to your point, is that even that scene where he's in the bathroom and the guy yells about him about his acting or whatever doesn't he say like go back in the women's restroom which is a reference to when he chased alva in the bathroom like it's so well known in the office that oh, we're, i'm just he? gonna okay. like be annoyed with you but make a joke about you stalking oh, someone in the women's bathroom i thought it was like him being just being performative and emotional like get out of here go to the women's restroom like well, it was again the, like another another pejorative the other great part about the old boys club is when he calls his client <laughs> and he's like look alva i'm gonna have to do a whole oh, yeah, singing that was dance great too yes <laughs> to make sure that this guy isn't angry and then he gets her on the phone i love just the look in his eyes as he's looking at alva and like, the other guy <laughs> is just like so chill he's like, he's like i'm sure you and your girl have other things to do and he's just like yeah okay frank <laughs> <laughs> well then i thought and maybe he's gonna admit that nothing happened and then all of a sudden he twists it he inverts it so it's like, yeah. it was like these three beats in that scene that are like oh shit he's gonna get he's gonna have to like perform and then oh it's he's off the hook he's admitting to her that he was off the hook and then he's like now you know he didn't even let me get yeah. a word in edgewise right yeah he is so livid right now and that's Am another I, just... through to you, <laughs> I have to I have, I have so many of these sounds on this soundboard I have to play with these but another thing I I just you know when people think of like you know yuppie executive culture where just a bunch of dudes in suits don't actually do any work and just like you know hey you son of a bitch i'm calling you on the phone you know give me a million dollar deal just like you know our dads did back in the day that's what you think of yeah it's so funny and he's like i'm gonna take the rest of the day off (laughs) just like yeah we never see him work no he's staring at his blotter what is he saying when he when he's staring at it uh he's staring at what he's staring at his desk the the thing on his desk and he's like chanting something and i god i can't remember what it was well also let's not forget that the whole thing that he's having alva do is so trivial like not only is that the only thing on his mind but it's really just like hey one of our clients wants to frame one of his first sales you know it has nothing to do with 
business operations at the Nothing. company. It's just a favor for a client. And that's mm. all he has on his mind for the whole week. I could take a horrible job if I wanted to. <laughs> and you have to do it. You have, you have to. to. <laughs> or I'll fire you. Do you understand? <laughs> All right, so I think this is well, a good uh, yeah, way I was, to... Well, I was going to say, so, there's no, like, there, there is like a weird power thing that's going on with that, too. Remember when he says the alphabet in front of the psychiatrist? and oh, do I? He, <laughs> he like forces that he has to finish it. He has to do it. There's this weird like narcissistic oh, power thing. Is it, do you have the clip of the alphabet? Because that would be amazing. I do. Let me play oh, it right does. now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here it is. It's easier. It's all alphabetical. You just put it in. The right file, according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, do you have so, so the thing that's so interesting is that he has to finish even yeah. at her protestations. And and again, remember at the beginning, uh, there's that other bit where he's saying like, uh, you know, time's up. I've got to go. You know your ABCs. And, and she's like, oh, how come you, you always feel like you need to end the session? Is it because you can't allow me to do that? So again, mm. oh. these, these power dynamics are constant. And then he does the same thing. He has to have uh, – uh, what's her name? Alva. He has to have her do this meaning, like th- this this meaningless task. But it's because it's a power thing. He has to be the one that's in control of everything. He's a narcissist, like in the typical way that a psychologist would diagnose somebody. Everybody else is his supply, and he's a narcissist feeding off of them. Mm. All right. So what I was going to say is that uh, we're talking kind of about class and power dynamics, which is an appropriate time to transition the conversation to vampires. We actually did a video two weeks ago on the new Netflix Castlevania show and talked about how in the original Bram Stoker book, class is a relevant theme in the book. And it's interesting how they have even brought that into this movie as well. There's a part in the movie where Nicolas Cage, I guess he's starting to turn or starting to lose his mind, depending on how you interpret it. And he's at a diner and he says, Mm. fucking grease hood. Mm. And then walk. And then storms out. We already mentioned earlier about how Alva lives in a poor neighborhood and lives with her mom and her whole family. I also really like the part. It's very short, but Alva gives money to the beggar on the subway. Yeah. Whereas, right. uh, you know, she obviously doesn't have a lot. She doesn't have, um, you know, as much wealth as Peter, but she's still giving stuff away. Um, and then I wanted to ask you guys, what do you guys think about the cab driver character? I really like this character. He's got a photo of him and his wife, and he says, there is love, and then there is work. Yeah. And the work is just for the love. Mm. Um, and I think he's a really good contrast to Peter. Peter is the 100% careerist who can't find love because his career is his entire identity, whereas we have this cab driver guy who's just like, you know, yeah, I just do whatever minimum task I need to do to get back to my love, which is really what I anchor my identity in. Hmm. I thought that was so cool. I think it's interesting, sweet man. just going off Austin's point about narcissism, is that in the final scene, Nick Cage wants his lover to reflect him. She should listen to classical music and be just like him, which is, I think, a tendency oh, yeah. in like millennial culture to essentially like, oh, I need to find someone on Tinder, Tinder who does like all the things I do and be exactly like me. Um, Mm -hmm. whereas like, it's not really, uh, fleshed out with the cab driver, but I think it's hinted to like, yeah, like he's just like a plain guy with a plain wife and like, he loves her and like, we're to assume it's healthy and not narcissistic and all these things. So like he comes back, the cab driver and his wife comes back later in his delusions as almost like taunting him or just like a reminder of like his so fucked up 
uh, conception of love. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. And I, I wondered that. I wondered if that was going to almost be like the, the commentary that the film was making. That's like, all you need is love kind of thing. But then at the end, it totally destroys that because then you think that, oh, like this guy is he, he, he himself is like incapable of it because even the, the, the kind of like perfect woman is basically just a reflection of himself, but in female form, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what it's saying. Like, I don't know if it if it's trying to say something bigger than that, or if it's, uh, or if it's just kind of like a a funny little plot device, or if it's just consistent with the character. But maybe it is kind of trying to say that, you know, you you do need a foil in order to really have true love. Well, also, I think it's interesting that all the women that Nicolas Cage sleeps with are like super attractive. Not to be mean here, but like you know, the cab driver's wife is not that attractive. But like he's much happier mm. than Nick Cage. Like Nick Cage can sleep with as many beautiful women as he wants, but he'll still always be a miserable prick. What do you guys think about the subplot with the the first woman that he brings home in the movie, the one who sees the bat, and the one that he later he bails on her at the art gallery, and then he stands her up at the bar. I guess even maybe later that same night. And then when she rejects him, that's what uh, drives him into the fit of rage, which I think speaks to this whole rejection thing. Right. Mm. Which yeah, is which is, like which just... is a telltale uh, like symptom of uh, I forget what they call it with narcissism. But when you when you restrict the supply from them, when they can no longer have access to the thing that is the the, the source of their energy that they're tapping into, they freak out. And they respond to this. I mean, I'm, I'm actually going through, not personally, but somebody very close to me is going through this uh, with an ex that they've recently been with. And so she's been kind of like relaying all of this stuff to me. So it's like actually really fresh in my mind. But that's exactly what it is. It's you need that supply. And when you don't have it, you go into a narcissistic rage. You need people's validation, even if you don't necessarily care about them or, or any of that stuff. It just created further distance for me. Like he became, he cemented it, the movie. It cements him as more and more of an asshole at that point. Yeah. Like at every turn, he's treating her so poorly that you're just, you know, you're ready to, yeah, you just, any empathy you might have had for him is now completely gone. And she seems yeah. so fucking cool too. She's into art. She had a good sense of humor. She laughed off a fucking bat attacking them in the middle of the throngs yeah, of passion. <laughs> she seemed like a badass, man. I was like, man, this guy fucked up. A, I mean, and she's gorgeous. So it's like on top of all of that. Fuck. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then also the thing, obviously, to bring up is Nosferatu. So the movie yeah. actually plays on the TV. He bas- he basically starts to physically emulate Nosferatu. So <laughs> oh, he I, literally I does at like, one point when he goes when he uh, when he attacks the woman in the club. Yeah, there's that. But also, <laughs> like when Alva comes to the door when she's finally found the contract, and he opens the door, and he's like hunched over, mm. and his hair is like slicked in a way that makes his yeah. head look more like Nosferatu. And I think that's probably where Cage's acting inspiration was derived from, because mm. a little bit of a spoiler warning. I know I was going to get into our script, but I'm not touching. Yeah. It. So on Saturday we talk Saturday's videos about Nick Cage, and we talk a little bit about uh, his acting inspiration, and just as a little taste of that, we won't go too deep into it, but he draws a lot from German expressionism and kind of more bombastic movements and stuff like that and Nosferatu is a essential piece of German expressionism so maybe it's even like all right I want to not only is it uh I'm taking inspiration from vampires of old but literally I'm taking the me- the method of acting of German expressionist vampires and bringing it to a 1980s movie which is uh hmm. pr- definitely pr- provides for something interesting as we've seen uh, yeah I have another line I'm going to play here real quick. Yeah. Well, the fact is I did murder someone last night. (laughs) I turned into a vampire. It's a long story. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love I love how when he's talking with who what's the the woman's name at the end that is like the perfect woman? Does she Sarah have a name? Oh no, she does. It's uh, hold on. I think it's Sharon. Sharon or something. Yeah. So let's. It is Sharon. Yeah. And so, but I love, I love how when he's complaining about her, the reason he starts complaining about her is because she won't get off the fact that he turned into a vampire, which again, just shows <laughs> oh, like his, yeah. his own sort of like uh, insecurity and neurosis about this, delu- these delusions that he's having. Again, it's the return of the repressed. He's repressing it, but he can't, he can't hide it from himself that he's lying to himself. Right. So even in his delusions, his delusions have to remind him that he's full of shit. And that's what that is about. Really? You came, became a vampire? Why did you become a vampire? When did you become a vampire? For how long? And it's like, God damn it, stop nagging me. But that's really just himself. <laughs> By the way, Cody says in the, in the comments that uh, vegans are the real vampires. Thanks, Cody. <laughs> Thank you, Cody. Super cool. Thank you, Cody. Hell yeah, that's my man right there. Um, you know, t- to get all meta about this class Uh-oh. thing. Oh, I'm excited. That's right. Uh, in the director's commentary, they mentioned that a couple of the scenes when Nick Cage is going crazy at the end and he's basically walking the streets like a hobo, <laughs> this film was so low budget that they just used a long angle lens, which basically means they could just put the camera very far away. And Nick Cage was just walking through the street with this wooden <laughs> stake, freaking out. And those other people around him are not actors. They're not extras. Those are just real people walking the streets. And... On a meta level, that's really interesting that, like, we basically have this literary executive turned hobo, and if if you were trying to make a point about how distanced people are to people with problems or to people on the lower on the lower side of the economic spectrum, and we actually have that mm. evident in front of us in just the way that the movie was produced. They also mentioned in that commentary that one of the clubs, in the club where he meets Rachel, they had to, like, drag, literally a, drag a dead body in out the of morning, the club yeah. in the morning before they shot there. Because it's like this is it said pre Giuliani nineteen eighty eight New York City or nineteen eighty seven where you know, it was it was rough. Well, when the <laughs> film started, I I was immediately transfixed on how New York was presented. New York was presented almost with a character character of its own. It was almost like a background character that was there the whole time, and the portrayal of Especially New York is a very sequence. particular portrayal of New York. Right. It's not the New York. That's the city of dreams. If I can make it here, I'll make it anywhere. It's not Broadway. It's it's not that it's a very dark, dreary, fog laden New York that is violent and hostile and lonely. And I don't know if I think I read something that like the director has made a couple of films about New York or maybe it was the writer. Maybe it was the writer, and, and they both kind of have a similar sort of take about New York. Oh, yeah, it was the writer because he, he did a Scorsese film. I, I don't remember which film it was, though. Um, but uh, they, was they it both kind of have. Hours? What is it? Was it After Hours? Yes, it I'm was. I'm just trying to think of. Oh, yes, okay, it was. There you go. Yeah, and, and they, they, they both have like a sort of like dreary depiction of this city in a very particular way. And I found that to be really interesting because it, it sets like the background in which the story takes place. Well, what's also great is that. Robert Bierman talks about this, but uh, earlier on in the therapist sessions, the city is often out of focus in the background. But as he gets more and more insane, the city, uh, it comes into focus. I think he's it's like in Mass and Square Park is what the building's overlooking. But at the end mm. where he's having the conversation with himself to the wall and it cut, cutting to them, he's standing like on the ledge, the, the park mm-hmm. like in full focus. And the idea is that the city is in part what's driving him insane. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm. Very cool. 
Yeah, can, there's a link to that article. Actually, I'll, I'll post that right it's now. A, in the, in the it's YouTube a great chat. article. It's called like 57 things we learned from the Vampire's Kiss commentary. And every right. single piece is so fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems like he's painting New York as the New York version of, or the Transylvania version of New York. This, this was also, um, you know, uh, this was in the 80s where like New York was still very gritty and, and very. And also um, there was a time where. New York had, I don't even know, they were like mental hospitals uh, and they were closed down and essentially all those people were left on the street and all those people now, that's why you see now a lot of homeless people on the street and they've since gone elsewhere or stayed homeless or a variety of other things. Uh, but but Nick Cage is like, yeah, these are exactly like the, the people I would see around me. But even, you know, in my experiences in New York, like there's two people in my neighborhood who are exactly like this. They're not covered in blood and I'm pretty sure they're harmless, but like they're always having a conversation with somebody else. Sometimes it's an argument. Sometimes it's not. And mm. I mean, one read is like, yeah, people are indifferent to them, but it's also a little bit of a survival strategy. Cause like if someone's arguing with a fantasy person, if you try to intervene in that, they might like punch you or bite you or a variety of other things. Mm. I really like how there's a bit of vampire foreshadowing at the beginning of the movie. So at the opening shot, he's laying on the couch in a kind of, kind of coffin-esque way <laughs> and then uh that. when he picks up the first girl he says to the cab be off my castle is but a few short blocks away <laughs> in his you you do it in the continental voice uh, you be I mean, be off you what is it? you be yeah, off be off my castle's but a few my castle is but a few blocks away yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he like speaks like an old count <laughs> uh, <laughs> jesus what a man uh yeah so um be off with you. He sounds to me like it's like George Takei meets Zoolander. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Go away now. That's just fine. Oh, my. You know what I also found interesting? We talked a bit about how the, this movie versus American Psycho, but also how that inaccessibility works into it, is you can't tell when Peter is being authentic and when he's not, especially when he goes to Alva's house with mm. the soup. By the way, I just love that the soup it's is like, like the, powdery it's piece the of shittiest shit. thing ever. <laughs> I, plus, uh, I brought soup. <laughs> yeah, and the weakest gesture possible. Yeah, even when mm. he's authentic, we don't really know. So we're not sure whether he's putting up a front when he confronts Alva, and then when he does drop the front and says, "You're gonna find that contract right <laughs> fucking now" or whatever, uh, it's a bit of a surprise. And I think, yeah, it's just. I mean, I can see why people. I think that it's a twofold thing. One, for nerds like us, it makes for an interesting film because we're not used to movies with that kind of perspective. But if for most traditional moviegoers, I think building this wall between you and the protagonist probably makes for a kind of, I don't want to say boring, but like it's probably easy to like lose interest. Yeah, I was trying I to guess. explain this to a friend of mine. She was actually, she was texting me and, I, and she's like, oh, what are you up to? And I sent her like a, a photo of my screen as I was watching it. And I was like, you know, Nick Cage, right? She's from Brazil. And she's like, you know, Nick, uh, I was like, you know, Nick Cage, right? She's like, of course I do. And so I tried to describe the film without like giving too much away. She's like, oh, is he the vampire? And I'm like, uh, sorta. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I was like, I don't want to. And I was like, well, there's kind of an inside joke in this film. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know how he is kind of like considered to be this over the top kind of eccentric kind of person and, and character. I was like, you have to watch the film. I think with that in your mind to really get like an extra layer of entertainment out of it. Do you guys agree? Yeah, it's his performance well, that now, keeps you interested. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. Is that if you watch this movie in 2019, then it really is like you're watching a movie that basically justifies the meme that we know as 
Nicolas Cage, which is I wish that Robert Bierman and Nicolas Cage had done that director's commentary more recently because oh, yeah. I think that was like in the 90s or something like that before there was 99. ever there was ever the open-eyed meme or anything because now mm. I was actually uh, who was I telling this to? I think it was I was telling it to Amanda who wrote the Nicolas Cage episode on Saturday. If they put this movie on Netflix and just had the thumbnail be him with the eyes, it would get like this movie would have a reawakening. <laughs> You know, because it's actually on Amazon Prime, and they use like the theatrical poster, which makes it look like a yeah, rom com. Right, bad idea. This mm. movie, I really think, could have a reawakening and be. It feels like such a cult classic. Like I said, it right. feels like the movie you roll up every year as you crack open your new brew or whatever. Like you, ha- yeah. you make something special, you get all your totally. friends together, and then you watch this every year as a tradition. I'm like, that's that's how I'd want to live I my lo- life. I loved. Wa- I've seen this movie so three good. times, and I've had so much fun every single second of the movie. And mm. I can't say that for a lot of films of 2018. Yeah. You know, there have been films that mm. are perhaps technically better, but it's fun. What's a good movie? You know? Yeah. Mm. What? What's, what's, what that's is that's a the good theme movie. of 2019. That, yeah. What exactly. makes what makes a movie? Jared? Yeah, Jacob. I actually yeah. think that your suggestion is brilliant. I really want to go to like a midnight viewing. You know, like they do with the room or with uh, or with Rocky Horror. Rocky yeah. Horror, like that type of thing, or where Big everyone Lebowski. is there and everybody's in on the joke and everybody goes and watches it. I feel like, and people can bring their fake vampire teeth or whatever. I feel like it would just be such an amazing experience. What do we have? We should host one. (laughs) Stay tuned for Cage Cage Fest 2020. Yeah, exactly. Brought to you by Wisecrack. Right, Nick Cage Uh, for president 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think we got a voicemail from Ryan. He wanted to uh, give give us his two cents on this movie. Let's play that. Ryan. What up, guys? It's Ryan. I hear that you guys are talking about the fucking classic movie (laughs) Vampires Kiss today. Damn it! I wish I could be there. I know I said last week that I really don't like movies about people going in delusional mental states, but this is one of those where they do it right because you got to have someone like Nicolas Cage at the helm basically is the golden rule. Um, yeah, what's there not to say about Nick Cage's acting? I, I Some people don't like Nick Cage's acting or like what he's going for, but this is exactly what I go to the movies for is to see people put it all out there on the line Mm. like him and show me something I've never seen before and show fucking emotions every single one of the human emotions especially yelling Um, (laughs) uh, and anyway I just really enjoy it this is the movie that my conspiracy theory is that American Psycho all the people behind that movie just Betty Snell has just watched uh, Vampire's (laughs) Kiss a bunch of times and uh, uh, and then wrote that book. Um, another, uh, I'm gonna go, but but if you like this movie, go see Secretary too. There's kind of some similarities Ooh. between uh, James Spader and Secretary in this movie. <laughs> anyway, love you guys and love Vampires Kiss and love Nick Cage. So psyched for Nick Cage month. Peace, Woo! baby. Hell yeah! Thanks, uh, Jared. I have, yeah. I have a request. You can say no. Yeah. I kind of just want to okay. run through my favorite things from the director's commentary. Oh, go for it. <clears throat> All right. Rattle it off, baby. So uh, Hemsdale, which I think is the marketing company, uh, didn't understand the movie, according to uh, the Beerman. Uh, they also cut it down <laughs> dramatically, and Nick Cage thinks some of his best work ever was lost. 
Oh no! Can you imagine if we can find that? It's got to be, be somewhere. Oh, so we 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 don't watch the director's cut, or I mean, we don't watch like the original cut or the longer cut. Well, or whatever. I don't we, think the original there, cut there are exists. some scenes in the director's cut oh, okay. where they're like, "Oh, I think this got cut," but I don't know if that means all of it. But there was a couple scenes Nick Cage is like, "I hadn't seen it." Also, everyone who loves this movie should watch the trailer to give you an idea of how they didn't understand it because it's like a man just trying to find love in all the wrong places. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I love that. Uh, so Cage was doing the voice of his father, who is a professor of comparative literature, who tried to speak Ooh. with distinction at some point. I think we've already talked about that a little bit. Oh, George Decay. Yeah. Uh, the dailies, uh, people tried to stop the accent and the director didn't notice at first. What do you mean people? Like, uh, like, like producers? The, producers? Or, yeah, the or people executive? watching the dailies, the producers, everyone involved was like, you need to stop, make him stop this. And the director didn't notice and God. said it was fine. Uh, <laughs> Pro- okay. Probably one of my best bits is that Nick Cage was really into method acting at the same time as like exploring this expressionism, and he wanted a real bat because that's what real method actors do. <laughs> and him and the director kept fighting about it. And at one point, Nick Cage sent out his assistant to go find a live bat for the scene. <laughs> and the director finally persuaded him, like some kind of petulant child, that he can't do the bat because if the bat bit him, he would die. And the cage was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I like the pigeon part, too. Although there was definitely no animal cruelty kind of mentions in this, I guess, in 1988. Yeah, Nick Cage is kind of proud that he caught a pigeon and the director in the commentary surprised him. He's like, oh, no, they were all they were all drugged. Like, you can't catch an actual pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> he his, his acting superpowers and, and the cockroach. Yeah, he actually ate a cockroach there there was an earlier scene i don't exactly remember what's happening but nick cage uh i think the director wanted him to move in a certain way or move over and nick cage is like no no no, i need to be standing still right here to do this scene and the director was really pissed off and it caused it to take 10 times as long as it normally would so nick cage also being in a method acting the the next day of shooting wanted to do this cockroach scene he wanted to eat a real cockroach which he referred to as a business decision. He's like, it's like this, the bus blowing up in speed, but you don't have to spend all this money on special effects. You know, it has the same effect. Uh, that's why he thought I have cockroach. The director made him do it twice, but still use the first cut. Yeah, he's like, it, he's like, this is like a two million dollar special effects kind of production right, or, because, or performance because people in the audience will react the shocked. same. Yeah. They'll be shocked. Very interesting. Very cool. All right, is that it? Uh, let me just uh, keep looking. Oh, the scene after he rapes Alva, uh, he stuck his fingers down his throat to make his eyes water uh, and make him seem more emotional. That's the boo-hoo scene, which I thought was hmm. interesting. He said that's an old actor's trick. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is in that director's – in that bit right there, the director makes a remark that somehow that there was a joke in the rape scene and that people didn't get the joke. What is he referring to? Because I didn't get the joke. A joke? I saw that it was – that he didn't like that they were using a blanks on – on camera or they're using a, yeah. a, a, a prop gun well that was nick cage but the director is saying that during the rape scene that they're like people just thought it was a straightforward rape scene but it's actually a joke and people just didn't get the joke i hmm. think well when nick cage like laps his tongue at her he does say it's so horrifying it's almost humorous maybe he means that okay I but my one of my okay my next favorite thing from the director's commentary is on day one of shooting nick cage showed up with a pencil mustache drawn on <laughs> and he wanted the character to have one and then I, my favorite thing about the director's commentary is there's very much like a parent and a child dynamic of the 
the the parent just being like no 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 you can't do that and making up bullshit reasons of why he can't do that so the director's like no 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 in, in the scene where you have the vampire's teeth the uh, mustache is going to conflict and it's going to be confusing on the eye so you can't have it and the cage is like yeah that's a good idea i guess i'll i'll drop the pencil mustache yeah as a director you have to be like a parent like you have to sort of just like what's oh, it going to take to get through to you nick yeah. cage <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses, or the cases we discuss have a school connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and head into the mailbag. We're going to start with our voicemails. Uh, once again, if you want to send us any comments, questions, jokes, whatever you want, 213-534-8807. Let's go ahead and see what we got. We've got some voicemails from folks, a lot of uh, voicemails about Bandersnatch, which we covered last week, and then we got uh, Kyle who called in about the Avengers. So let's start with some Bandersnatch stuff, and we can hop around. Jared, you let me know how many you want to go into. Let's okay. start with Chris here. Hi. My name is Chris. I'm from California, but I was just watching your Show Me the Meeting episode on Bandersnatch, and uh, I thought it was really interesting about, I think it was Austin's comments about the way in which the show really makes you, like, look back at your own life, and it gets even more meta in the sense of, like, oh, what if we're not being controlled on our own? Like, everything else is controlling us. I think it's interesting, and I, I thought the same thing when I originally watched, but I just wanted to know that, in my opinion, like, the, the logic, like, it doesn't go anywhere. Like, it, you, you get super worked up about it, but... Like, if, if that is the case, then it becomes irrelevant because nothing you do matters. So, like, the only way to exercise that is to do something that Stefan did and, like, do some fucking nuts and just see if you could do it or if you would die or what goes on. But it, it, I don't think it's, like, worth getting caught up over. Additionally, and I'm surprised you guys didn't make this reference in your analysis, uh, it made me really think a lot about uh, the game Roy in Rick and Morty when Morty gets the opportunity to live out this entire guy's other life. So I think in that context makes the conversation even more interesting is if you think like Morty, the way he experienced the game, he thought he was Roy. Like they needed to like reorient himself, him with his own like reality for a moment. So what if that's kind of like things are so to concede Austin's point, like, hey, what if like we are being controlled by some other entity somewhere that is not currently us technically in this body, but maybe we just are that entity and we don't even understand that we're in this game because we're so thoroughly connected. I just thought it was a, an interesting point to make, and uh, I thought a Rick and Morty reference was worth it. Thanks for taking it. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. So the first part he mentions, um, I think he's talking about at the end, or if you get the good ending, or what I consider the good ending, Stefan says, I just stopped worrying about the... Uh, you know, giving people free will and I just stripped it all out. Is that is that what he's saying in terms of why you shouldn't just dwell on it too much because ultimately it's his decision to not worry about free will that allows him to complete the game and for the game to be good? Is that what he's getting at? Is that what you guys got? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think too, it, it just has to do with the idea if we are really determined and if if it could somehow be like scientifically verified without a shadow of a doubt and everyone came to a consensus that yes, we are just biologically determined and all of this 
no, these notions of freedom are just illusory, uh, then fuck it. Then you can just do whatever you want. And th that's why the author of Bandersnatch was like, fuck it. I'm just going to cut the head off of my wife and Stefan could just go and do whatever the fuck he wants to. I think that was kind of what he was saying is that if that were the case, but you still had this oh. illusion of freedom, then it doesn't fucking matter. Any choice that you make really has no consequence, which goes to I what Colin is saying on the balcony when they're all high. And he says that uh, the choices that we make in this individual universe don't individually matter. They only matter in so far as they like lead towards that greater whole. But if the whole thing is determined, then your individual choices are going to simply serve that whole anyway. So it really doesn't fucking matter. So just throw yourself over the cliff because it really is inconsequential. I really love the paradoxical nature of that statement. If everything is determined, then fuck it. We can just do whatever, whatever we, we want. want. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's the great, that's the great paradox of, uh, like, uh, of Oedipus, right? Like, was he determined to do it or did he do it and then somehow it just kind of like led to it like what is that relationship i mean you find that in in religion too if god is sovereign and everything is planned then how do you have free will and people have tried to reconcile it through stuff like compatibilism which are philosophical ideas of trying to figure out how to reconcile free will with determinism it's a it's it is a paradox Cool. What do we got next? We've got more Bandersnatch. Let me actually break it up real quick. Here's Kyle talking about the Avengers and allegory. Hi, show me the meaning crew. I left a message earlier, but I wanted to make it shorter so it could get on the air. Thank you. <laughs> Kyle, long-time listener here, just rewatched Avengers Infinity War. Unlike you guys, I like this movie, and I feel like it's because they made a bold allegory for their villain. So, like, Thanos represents God the Father. Um, a few examples are when uh, the very first of the beginning of the movie opens. Um, the very first words are a sermon from his preacher. Loki utters words to him before he dies. He'll never be one of us, a god. So the religious thing keeps coming up. Um, and I feel like it's most poignant when he has to sacrifice his most beloved child for the salvation of all of us. I think it gets really interesting when you look into Christian doctrines that say God the Father isn't all-powerful but is limited by greater laws of the universe, and I feel like that really addresses the biggest complaint about the movie. Why didn't he just create more resources? Simply, he just didn't have the power to. So you can see that in Mormonism and other kind of transhumanism-type Christian Christianity. Um, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. I like the movie. I don't dislike <laughs> them. <laughs> I mean, it's... You know, I think a lot of people with the Avengers, it's you either are so ecstatically in love with it that you can't say anything critical about it or you just you like it. But, you know, it's not fucking perfect. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's really interesting. I have not seen it since theaters. I don't really remember thinking uh, a lot about any kind of theological metaphors going on. But how did that ring to you, Austin? Um, I mean, I'm always down for thinking things in terms of theological or philosophical metaphors. Um, who Who's the son that he sacrifices? Well, it's his daughter, Gamora. Oh, daughter, Gamora. Okay, yeah. So he has to sacrifice Gamora in order to save the world. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, so from an orthodox perspective, that would be problematic because God isn't shoehorned into having to sacrifice Jesus. And so, so there. I mean, I guess, I guess he could be, like he said. Uh, in I don't know what he meant by transhumanist interpretations of Christianity, but like um, the idea that there are certain forms of Christianity that that would say that there are like natural laws that exist outside of of God, or not that exist outside of God, but that God works within sort of the the um, 
the reality of the world that God has created himself, that God can't violate God's own nature, right? So like God, you know, the whole thing, can God make a rock that's so big that God can't uh, lift it? Um, or can God sin? No, God can't sin. So God can't do anything because there are restraints, but those restraints are the restraints that are the characteristic of the very nature of God's self. And therefore, the universe that God has created is also subject to those things. So, I mean, I guess there's something to that, that like, that like he couldn't create more resources because the universe that he's created is essentially like a resource of scarcity or something like that. I mean, I guess there is something interesting there. I hadn't thought about that before, but when he was talking about it, the, the light bulbs were going off in the brain. I, I do find that interesting. And this has to do with like, in theology is, is God's will supreme. So certain Protestant particularly uh, interpretations of Christianity say that God's will is supreme. So God wills things first. And then there are other sort of interpretations that would try to say that, well, God's will isn't ultimately the most supreme thing, but it's something else. So how do we understand the nature of God? How do we understand the nature of the universe that God has created? And then how do we understand how God works within that? Are things the way they are because God has willed them to be that way? And is his will separate from his nature? Or is his nature preeminent? And then it's his will that sort of comes after that, that is following based on his nature. Um, so that could be something that kind of, uh, that seemed to kind of be what he was talking about. Definitely be interested to see if they lean into this more in the next movie. Reminder yeah. on the voicemail number, if you want to leave us a voicemail, do you remember the number? 213-534-8807. That's it, I guess. So it's in the description. So. I think so. So if you want to leave us a voicemail for uh, Nick Cage Month or for Vampire's Kiss, that's how you do it. I've got a couple more voicemails from uh, for Bandersnatch. I'm going to dive into those. Sure. All right, here's one from Connor. Hey, uh, this is Connor, and I just am calling in regards to the uh, Black Mirror Bandersnatch episode. I just had a thought about... Um, the discussion about whether, you know, we as people are controlled in the same way that uh main character of Vandersnatch is. Are we are we just pawns? Are we just are we just characters that someone else controls? And it got me thinking and I, I figured at least to how I think about it, that you know, if that is the case, if we're controlled by something more, something that we're not aware of, in a sense that makes them us. You know, if someone else is controlling me, for example, like, I am, in a sense, them. And so I, I essentially become an extension of them, and they become, in the retroactive, well, not retroactive, but, you know what I mean, I, I become an extension of them, and they become an extension of myself. And so we're we're not two different things, one controlling the other. I'm just them. I don't know if that makes sense, but, uh, yeah, basically that's my thoughts. Maybe someone, one of you can extrapolate what I mean and, hmm. and expand on it. But thanks. You can think of it like you're playing StarCraft or any game or, you know, chess. We are the pawn. We are the extension of their army or we are the extension of their uh, of their decisions. Yeah, that's why the study of ludology, which is kind of choice and narrative or the study of gaming, is so fascinating. And how mm. – um, we're actually thinking about doing a video about how this generation of gaming is, is very much about kind of open world and the open world has been done in a lot of different ways. And I think the different ways that it's been tackled has – uh, allowed for the narrative to resonate on different levels um but as far as uh, see i mean that that's kind of the point i was going against in the black mirror episode i think that um there is a i mean you could do it both ways which is why it's such a fascinating topic it could be that yes by me controlling a character i do identify with them more since it's my actions but it could also be that which i think the 
episode kind of points to by Stefan saying, you know, who are you, Invisible Puppet Master? It does create this distance. Mm. But uh, that's why I think the episode is so interesting. More so than the, the deterministic readings, I really think the ludology readings are super interesting. <clears throat> Just to interject real quick, uh, I was reading something really interesting actually talking about the Roy episode, Rick and Morty, uh, going back to that other voicemail. But to me, the question about like, oh, are we living in a simulation? Are we being controlled by someone else? That doesn't really interest me because I think you can't really prove it. But the, the point this person made is the real question is that we can actually never, what does it mean that we can never tell whether or not we're living in a simulation? Uh, and I think you could say that about Bandersnatch and all these other sort of simulation-based thought experiments is if we truly can't, let's say we're not, but we truly can't tell the difference. What does that mean for free will? What does that mean for agency, for choice, for morality and all that stuff? And I just think that's kind of an interesting way to frame it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, one um, last voice. Oh, sorry. Go for it. Awesome. No, I was just going to say to kind of like particularly for that guy that that left the voicemail, the last one. I don't remember what his name Connor. was, but Connor. the I what is it, Connor? Mm-hmm. Connor, if you want to look into Hegel, what you just described with the idea that like uh, the people that are being controlled are just merely like extensions of the controller is very similar to this idea of like uh, idealism that you might find in a, of a Hegelian reading, which is the idea that um, you only know yourself in the objects uh, that, that, that are like the objects or the products of your hand or the objects that are before you. Like you only know yourself insofar as you're being reflected back to yourself in them or as you kind of are participating and co-constituting, like creating them alongside as you yourself are being created. And there is this like uh, integral relationship between the two. So in that sense, the, what you're describing is kind of a way of looking at Hegelian idealism. You might be interested in looking at that further. Just the idea that um, you know yourself as you objectify yourself. Not objectify yourself like like I'm objectifying myself uh, as a woman and you know I'm using my sexuality. Not like that. But when you, when you literally turn yourself into an object, when you do that, that's the only way you can know yourself. So you know yourself through the product of your hand or you know yourself – through the creature that you're creating or something like that because then you're being reflected back to yourself. So might want to look into that. Is the, the, I know that there's like a Zen perception philosophy of, of um, from the Zen perspective, they, they mention that you can't really know truth at all, but the only truth you can know is what you perceive and how you perceive it. So you can be, you can be, you could be uh, assured that like the way that you are feeling temperature now or the way that you are seeing an object uh, that is the only truth everything else you don't know mm. um i'm not sure if you're kind of mentioning it in the same way in terms of that like you're you're just an object that can perceive certain things and the way you perceive them that's truth everything else is who knows mm. uh, god knows in terms of the hegelian reading we have one more voicemail from aaron on bandersnatch i'm not sure if we have emails or anything yeah i, I didn't write down any emails today but we still are checking it so if you want to send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co we normally do read them on air, but I did not have a chance to compile them this morning. It was an early morning, 5 a.m. wake up. So here, anyway, here's Aaron also on Bandersnatch. Hey, Wisecrack, what's up? This is Aaron. I just got done listening to your Bandersnatch review. thought it was really good. I love the whole uh, uh, Bandersnatch. It's amazing. But something uh, I thought that you guys didn't cover that uh, might have missed was just the whole nature of regret and wishing that you could redo your choices. You know, mm. so like that uh, first pass where, you know, your dream is that you're going to work with – uh, work with your idol, make a video game, and then he does it, and it sucks. It's terrible. It's horrible. And he's regretting his life. He's like, man, I wish I could do it over again. But guess what? You do it over again, and it's worse. You just lose your mind. You kill people. You mm -hmm. uh, just descend into madness. 
Um, same thing with, you know, all the hatred that he has for his dad. He blames his dad that um, for his mother's death. Uh, but then if you go back and you change it, you realize that either she dies anyways or you die with her. So actually uh, his dad that he's been so angry and bitter at – actually saved his life if it wasn't for his dad hiding mm. that bunny mm. he would have been mm. dead he would have been gone so maybe uh and you know i've heard people before think about um multiple reality as a uh kind of blanket of well you know maybe there's a reality where i made better choices well hey maybe actually the life you're living as terrible at it, as it is and as many regrets as you have maybe the life that you're living right now is actually the best option um, so just want to see what you guys think about that. Uh, love the show and hope you guys have a good one. That's really interesting. The only thing that does get better is that the game can be good. You know what I'm <laughs> right, saying? Right, right. <laughs> At least there's that. Yeah, you can have to regret that and then go back and you get a better rating. Well, you it know, could just be the rating. Somebody emailed us. I, I don't have the emails in front of me, so apologies if you're listening. I forgot your name. But somebody did email us and say, you know what? I actually think the good ending is when you die with your mother on the train. Hmm. And I was like... Well, I guess I can see how that might be a better ending than you chopping your father up and getting a good review. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what the goal is. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think we live in the best possible of all worlds, Alec? I was just thinking about I've been reading some uh, Eugene Thacker, who's a real downer. Uh, so everyone knows. <laughs> and he, he's a pessimist. And he says, you know. Uh, like pessimists are just like better optimists because they agree with optimists that we live in the best of all possible worlds, but uh, realize that this is in fact the problem. Hmm. That was very well timed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best one, baby. Speaking of which, last thing I want to end on is apparently Netflix is getting sued by the Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, I heard. I uh, saw company. an article about that. Yeah, because I guess I think their lawyers are claiming that they're capitalizing off the nostalgia for their book series. Well, Choose Your Own Adventure, I think, is like a copyrighted name for that genre, for that brand of book. Or trademarked, yeah, trademark name for that uh, genre. Which I didn't know. I thought, oh. I mean, you can't trademark, you know, nonfiction. But it's just right. the name, Choose I Your Own just Adventure. Name, I think like adventure. if somebody else did it and called Pick Your Own Path, you'd be in the clear. Yeah, yeah. But do they, they don't say choose your own. I mean, they use that in the marketing. Well, or it's like the fine, the fine brothers can't trademark react, right? Because it's the actual act of reacting. But, but choosing your own adventure, I suppose, is a name where you might just say pick your next move, or I don't know what the term yeah. would be. Make a choice. I, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a loose trademark. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it's I, like think, I think I think uh, Netflix is going to crush that lawsuit. I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> they <laughs> or they'll just fine. settle out of court. It'll be either way. Yeah. All right, guys. So usually we do do the emails, but uh, it was an early morning this morning, so please still email us at movies at wisecrack.co. We are continuing with Nicolas Cage month. We've got three more or two more Nicolas Cage movies we're doing. Definitely adaptation, I'm sure. We'll we're probably going to do list. adaptation, maybe Leaving Las Vegas, Ooh. maybe... Um, Con Air, Face Off. Maybe Con Air, maybe Face Off, maybe maybe The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Let's try to get more than, uh, than three people on the podcast. Yeah, if you guys have any... Wish list Nicolas Cage movies. Send us an email. We haven't exactly decided which one we're doing next, but I think adaptation is definitely going to be it's one a safe of them. Bet. Yeah, so. put them in the comments on YouTube. Send us an email. Leave us a voicemail. Yeah, what Nick Cage 
craziness do you want us to dive into next? And be on the lookout for our Nick Cage video on Saturday, which we're all very proud of and very excited for. Yes. And uh, we're just feel so grateful to have Nick Cage in our lives right Thank now you, and Nick in our Cage. hearts. His holiness. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's any other Nick Cage. I mean, we got, I'm just going to play off a little off the soundboard just to just as a, just just why a little, not? Mm, wash over my well, day. Bless us. Yeah. <laughs> What's that from? <laughs> that is not from Vampire's Kiss. No, it's not Kiss, Vampire's Kiss. I don't um, know. Some other masterpiece, I'm sure. But the, you guys get it. That's all you have to do! <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. I think all I've those gotten... are staying on the soundboard forever. By the way. So we have to be on the soundboard. Look, be on the lookout for more Nick Cage sound effects <laughs> on Show Me the Meaning. Anyway, guys, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up for today. So uh, thank you to my co-host for joining me. Where can we find you guys on the internet, Alec? You can find me on Twitter at WisecrackAlec. I've been tweeting a lot of bad Marie Kondo jokes. Mm-hmm. All right, oh, I like Marie Kondo. Austin. Oh, yeah. Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, Check out my philosophy podcast, Owls at Dawn, as well, if you would like. Jacob? You can find us at Wisecrack, (laughs) at Wisecrack, Wisecrack underscore official on Instagram, YouTube.com slash Wisecrack, or YouTube.com slash Aliens Guy. Okay. All right, signing off for now, guys. Until next time, hooray for Nicolas Cage Month. Yay, Nicky. I'm just going to play this off until we get cut off here. What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file, according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z! Huh? That's all you have to do!